Do our lives reflect Christ through a vibrant and productive faith? This week's podcast by Neil Pollard introduces the first lesson in a study of the book of Colossians. In this lesson, Neil looks at Paul's teachings and presents ways we can reflect the Savior in our daily Christian walks and become complete in Christ. You know, most of us hate unfinished projects. We like closure and completion. If you're a runner and your goal is to run a marathon, you're not going to be happy with just running 25 miles. Or if you're pursuing a doctorate degree, you're dissatisfied with doing all that coursework, but not doing and finishing the dissertation. If you want to get married, then just getting engaged is not enough. Call it closure or finishing the job, but we want to fully achieve the goal. When it comes to relationships, we don't just want partial friendship or marriage. Our goal is completeness. So what was Paul's goal as a preacher? In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 28, he says, We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. That was a particular concern that Paul had for the church at Colossae. He was particularly concerned about some unnamed teachers who might delude them with persuasive arguments, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 4. Or they might take them captive through philosophy and empty deception, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8. Perhaps they might defraud them of the prize, as Paul would say it in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 18. Or maybe they would have the appearance of wisdom but teach what is of no value, as he says in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 22. Those teachers could not help these Christians to be complete in Christ with what they taught. You know, the goal of every proclaimer of God's Word should be to proclaim Christ in order to present every man complete in Christ. How to get that job done is so often what the challenge is. And yet Paul really gives us a good template for what to teach to help complete people in Christ. But before we get to Paul's first lesson on how to be complete in Christ, I want to make some observations as we look at this letter to the Colossians. The first observation that I'd like to make about Colossians is the authority behind this message, that is, the letter of Colossians. Paul introduces himself in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 1 as an apostle of Jesus Christ. At the time that Paul wrote, he apparently did not know some of these brethren and the brethren at Laodicea personally. And so his first words to them was to assert his authority, his apostleship, the apostleship of Christ by the will of God. Since he's going to be countering a false message, the message of the false teachers, he rests on the weight of the authority that Christ gave him. Paul was known by reputation throughout Asia Minor in Acts chapter 19. In Colossae, New Epaphras, who was Paul's fellow worker that he mentions twice in this letter. Isn't that interesting to kind of establish rapport and build relationship? There's this man they have in common, Epaphras. And so he gives the authority of his message. He is one they should trust because of his apostleship and because of his friendship with Epaphras. We also notice something about the audience of his message as we continue to read down in Colossians. In chapter 1 and verse 2, he identifies them. They are saints. Now this term means persons who belong to God, who have a special relationship with Him, according to Lonida. That made them qualified to share in the inheritance 
Paul would say in Colossians 1 and verse 12. This would also make them, uh, give them the ability to have God's revelation. They would know it, Colossians 1 and verse 26. That revelation which Paul identifies as the Word of God, chapter 1 and verse 25. This was what was involved in being saints. He also identifies them as faithful brethren. That means they were trusted individuals who were part of an objectively defined group of those who are in Christ. Now, with these two specific terms that Paul uses, he seems to not only be defending his own legitimacy as an apostle, as a messenger of Christ, but also their legitimacy as members of his church. You see, false teachers there were asserting a different, contradictory brand of Christianity that they needed to know that what they already had was right, that they were already true New Testament Christians. They weren't still looking for the answer. They already had the answer. That's the audience of this letter, these Colossians, these saints, these faithful brethren. But we also see something about the appeal of Paul's message. What does Paul appeal to or to whom does he appeal? In verses 1 through 3, Paul specifies that it's Christ. When we're studying the book of Colossians, it's important for us to see that at the heart and center of this letter, as much as any letter in the Bible or any book of the, of the Bible, the book of Colossians centers on Jesus. His name is mentioned 25 times throughout this epistle, four times just in, in Paul's greeting here. Making them complete in Christ was not only about the completeness, but it was also about the Christ. He is the one who has all authority. We read that in Colossians 3 and verse 17. He is also the one who is the source of their hope, Colossians 1 and verse 27. Our circumstances are not exactly identical to the church at Colossae. They lived 2,000 years ago in another part of the world. But we'll notice some similarities. Like them, we have access to the same inspired message and we enjoy the same relationship with Christ as New Testament Christians. Like them, we hear conflicting messages that detract from the all-sufficiency of Christ that suggest other ways are the ways in which we can have completeness in life. What we need to find out is how to be made complete in Christ. So how are we made complete in Christ? First of all, we're made complete in Christ by our faith in Him. We see that in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 4. Paul talks about the faith of the Colossians throughout the letter. He does so both explicitly and implicitly. Things that we see him state and things that we can conclude from what he says. Paul makes four explicit statements about their faith. The first statement he makes about their faith is that it was perceptible. If you look in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 4, Paul and Timothy had heard about it. They had probably heard about it from Epaphras, the one that Paul appeals to in Colossians 1 and verse 8. You know, just like a lack of faith is something that people can perceive and see in us, so also is the presence of it. That faith is seen in the ways that Paul is about to talk about. In knowledge, Colossians 1 verse 9 and 11. Faith is seen in that worthy walk, Colossians 1 and verse 10. This Uh, Knowledge is seen in their bearing the right kind of fruit, Colossians 1 and verse 10. This knowledge shows itself in spiritual strength and maturity, Colossians 1 and verse 11. And this knowledge will reveal itself in a spirit of gratitude, Colossians 1 and verse 12. 
You see, faith is just going to show itself in the way that we live our lives every day through our works, through the way we conduct ourselves, whether it's on the job, in our neighborhoods, in our activities, in our children's activities. Some have the notion that faith is something that's simply stored in your heart and your mind. But the New Testament makes it clear that that kind of faith is not enough. In James chapter 2 and verse 17, James says, Faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. When some say that religion should be personal, what they mean is that it should be private. What's the difference? Someone says not everything personal is private. All of your clothing is personal. It it all belongs to you, but not all of it is private. That would just refer to certain garments that best are left unnamed. But the rest of your personal wardrobe is very public. You share it all the time. Indeed, we all think of how our clothing will be received publicly when we purchase it. And so our clothing speaks, it communicates, and yet it's personal. And so too does religious faith. Faith shouts. We're developing that in ways that other people can't see. But people are going to see the results of our faith and the way that we live ourselves. It's public. But also this faith is something that's permanent. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 5, Paul rejoiced over the stability of these Colossians' faith. Now all stability means is a firm commitment. And the best earthly illustration of commitment that we can find outside of a relationship with Christ is in marriage. In January of 2014, Captain and Tennille divorced after 39 years of marriage. You know, they're the ones who sang, Love will keep us together. Sadly, they're not alone. The Washington Post reports a phenomenon once almost unheard of, what they call gray divorce. Between 1999 and 2009, one out of every four couples over 50 years old divorced. And many in this statistical category are baby boomers who are also sometimes known as the me generation. But it illustrates how even stable and firm commitments over a long period of time are continually challenged. Isn't it interesting that New Testament writers liken faith to Christ uh, to a marriage? We know that we can count on Christ to be steadfast and He is going to be committed to us. But the question is, can we be counted on as our part of the relationship? But also as we look at the faith of these Colossians, we see that it was productive. In Colossians 2 and verse 7, Paul mentions three ideas together. Do you notice them there? In Colossians 2 and verse 7, firmly rooted, built up, and established. This led to properly walking in Christ. Chapter 2 and verse 6. I understand that there's a wild fig tree at Echo Caves in South Africa, and the roots reach 400 feet deep. In Calcutta Botanical Gardens in India, there's a banyan tree whose roots spread a circumference of 1,350 feet and a full three acres. Now, both of these trees have endured droughts and storms, and the ambition of their roots were key to their survival, even though they're different trees made and designed different ways. May I suggest to you that your faith will only be as established as your roots are firm and deep. And the roots are not going to go deep and they're not going to spread out in the droughts and the storms. That's got to happen before the trials occur. You're laying down the roots day after day. We also notice concerning their faith that it was powerful. 
and chapter 2 and verse 12. Paul says we are raised up and made alive with Christ through faith. Will you take note of the connection between faith and baptism in this verse? Colossians 2.12 says we're buried with Him in baptism and then we're raised up, which Paul makes equal to or synonymous with forgiveness. This is the same message that Paul delivered to the Romans. If you'll look in Romans chapter 6, verse 3 and 4, Paul writes to the church there, and he says, Therefore we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. If we are going to be complete in Christ, our faith must bear these characteristics. Paul says other things that would imply their faith in addition to those explicit statements. For one thing, Paul tells us that the Colossians had received Christ. Colossians 2 and verse 6. He also says that they had been made complete. Colossians 2 and verse 10. He further says that they had died with Christ and their life was hidden with Christ. Colossians 3 and verse 3. These statements all point to the results of faith in their lives. So here's the question. Do our lives reflect Christ through a vibrant, living, and productive faith? Or do we hide and obscure Him in our lives because our faith can't be seen in our daily lives? You want to be complete in Christ, you've got to reflect Him. And the first way we see when we come to Colossians that we reflect Him is by our faith in Him. But a second way in which we reflect Christ and thus find ourselves complete in Him is by our love for His people. Again, we see that in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 4. Their faith did not exist by itself. Paul mentions it along with their love. And it seems that this love flows in two directions. It flows horizontally, and it, uh, horizontally rather, and it flows vertically. They reflected Christ by their love for all the saints. There's the horizontal, chapter 1 and verse 4. These saints had a relationship with all the other saints, and it was characterized by love. You read through the New Testament from Acts to Revelation, and you're going to find so many characteristics of the New Testament church, attributes or qualities that it is supposed to have in order to be that church. But the best foot forward that we could begin with is through loving one another. The darker the world gets by sin, the brighter brotherly love shines we know that Jesus teaches that this is how you tell who His disciples are. In John 13, 34 and 35, Jesus says, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. You know, one of the many ruthless things about ISIS, the Islamic State jihadist, is, is doing to persecute those professing to be Christians is crucifying them, beheading them, and burying them alive. In Iraq, when the terrorists advance on a city, these Iraqi targets flee and abandon their uh, houses. The terrorists then mark them with a symbol that looks like a cyclops smiley face, a circle with a U-shaped symbol with a dot in the middle. It, it's the Arabic letter noon and is the equivalent of our letter N. It stands for Nazarenes. It's a derogatory term that's used by these extremists to label the Christians. It's their mark or brand for them so that they may know who they are. But as we grow and mature in Christ, there should be a mark, a brand that identifies us. And it's our love. 
There's a song out there that suggests, and they'll know we are Christians by our love. That's not ground that should be occupied foremost by any other group, be it Buddhists or Hindus or anyone else outside of Christ. God taught us true love through Christ. And it cannot be more perfectly demonstrated than in the way that Christ taught us to demonstrate it. And love, biblical love, is not merely soft and compromising or warm and fuzzy. Loving one another can be very difficult. The closer the relationship, the more difficult it can be at times. And so as it is with faith, love is something knowable, provable, and measurable. In 1 John 4 and verse 11, John says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. If you look on down further in the letter, you'll see that they reflected Christ by their love, not just for one another, but their love in the Spirit. Colossians 1 and verse 8. This gives commentators trouble because there's no definite article before Spirit in the Greek. And so the literal rendering would be love in Spirit. And while it's possible that Paul is urging them to have a loving attitude toward each other, it seems more likely to me that he's referring to love in the Holy Spirit for at least two reasons. The first reason is in Colossians 1 and verse 9, Paul connects what he's just said with his prayer that they be filled with spiritual understanding. Now, how would that come? It would come by the instruction from the Spirit of God. How do I know how to think and live without divine guidance. How does God actively guide me but by the word revealed by His Spirit? And then number two in Colossians 1 and verse 10, Paul then speaks of bearing fruit. Now I want you to think about a similar passage and what Paul says to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 5 beginning at verse 22. He says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Against such there is no law. Now those that are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. You'll notice, won't you, that love is at the head of that list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22. And what does it mean to live and walk by the Spirit in showing love? Well, it would seem that simply by demonstrating love... It's an inevitable outcome of being led by the Spirit of God. In other words, if we have a healthy relationship with God, we're going to have a healthy relationship with each other. And a healthy relationship with each other is one that's characterized by brotherly love. We live in a world full of people who want their lives complete. They know that something is missing, and we can show them what they're missing. And what's missing is Christ-like love. But you know, if our quest is to be made complete in Christ, as we study in Colossians chapter 1, we see that we're made complete in Christ by reflecting Him. That's got to show in our faith. That's got to show in our love. But in the third place, we show, we reflect Him by our hope of heaven. We see that in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 5. Paul mentions hope three times in this letter. And all three times are right here in the first chapter of Colossians. He mentions the hope of heaven in Colossians 1 and verse 4. 
the hope of the gospel in Colossians 1.23, and the hope of glory in Colossians 1 and verse 27. They are all from the same word family in the original language. That word hope means the looking forward to something with a reason for confidence that it will be fulfilled, according to uh, Bauer, Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich. Or it also means the foundation of that confidence. In each case, what they hoped for was something that they knew and something that they had been taught. The hope of heaven that they had previously heard in the truth of the gospel, the gospel of truth which came to them. The hope of the gospel of being reconciled and made holy was what they had already heard and what was already preached to them. And then the hope of glory, which was Christ in them, was based on what Paul and other preachers of the word, like Epaphras, had already communicated to them. You know, there are a great many people who wish their lives away. I, I had an uncle who always entered the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes and he always dreamed about the big schemes and inventions. And he talked about what he would do when he got rich. And he played the lottery, sadly, with some regularity. He was a wisher and a dreamer. And he's a poor man today. You know, the world equates the Christian's hope with the wisher's dreams and the dreamer's wishes. But the difference between them is the foundation beneath them. Dreams and wishes by themselves are fantasies and delusions. There's no substance. But the substance and foundation of the Christian's hope is Christ, Colossians 2 verse 17. It is as reliable and trustworthy as the Word of God which reveals it to us. So now these Christians stood to lose their hope by entertaining a false message. But what they already had in Christ was legitimate and the reason to base their entire lives on it. You're probably familiar with James J. Braddock. He was an up-and-coming boxer, a pro who lost the heavyweight championship in July of 1929, who lasted all 15 rounds and lost on the judge's decision. And then a few months later, the Depression hit, and his career went as low as the stock market crash. He even had to go on public assistance for a while. This went on for about five years until 1934 when he managed to get the opportunity at the last-minute fill-in to fight the big bruising Corn Griffith. And this set off a chain of unlikely victories that culminating in his beating Max Baer, a 10-to-1 favorite, a year later. He defended his title two more times against huge Titan opponents. He was considered a symbol of hope, especially for the Irish and the working-class people of New Jersey. But the one that they called Cinderella Man would lose his title eventually to Joe Lewis. You know, stories like Braddock's can give us a measure of hope when we look at the human spirit and the resilience that we can have. But you know, there's one hope that will never disappoint and will never bring defeat. Paul mentions that hope in this chapter. Your life is complete when you live in the hope that Christ brings. All other hopes may fail, but this is one hope that will never disappoint. Do you remember what Paul tells the church at Corinth? In 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 13, he says, But now abide faith, hope, love, these three. The greatest of these is love. Paul begins and ends 1 Thessalonians mentioning the importance of faith and hope and love. He begins the letter in chapter 1 and verse 3, and he ends the letter in chapter 5 and verse 8 saying the same thing. 
And that's how Paul begins the Colossian epistle. Touting, upholding these three spiritual qualities of faith, love, and hope. Each one of them reflect Christ. How do we say that? Well, Christ is the basis of faith. Christ is the perfect example of love. And Christ is the very reason for our hope. I know we can't help it. We're obsessed with value. We're looking for what will last. And Paul tells us, as he told Corinth and as he told Thessalonica and he told Colossae, that it's faith, hope, and love. It's these three. And so as we examine this letter to the Colossians, and Paul is telling us how to be complete in Christ, we find great comfort and hope in what we read there. Don't you want to have that hope and completeness? The Bible tells us how to have that. At the very beginning of this lesson, I alluded to Colossians chapter 2 and verse 12 where it says, Buried with Him in baptism, God has given us a plan whereby we can be made complete in Him. I hope that you'll consider that plan. It was preached by Peter the very first time that the gospel of Jesus was ever preached. He stood before people and he presented Christ. The, the virgin birth, the death on the cross for sins, and the resurrection of Jesus. As a result of that, the people who heard him that day responded to that message asking, What shall we do? They wanted to be made complete. And Peter told them in simple terms, What's required? To these very people who did believe that Jesus is the Son of God, he told them to repent and be baptized, every one of them, for the remission of their sins. Acts 2 and verse 38. Maybe you realize your need to be made complete in Christ by acting on that faith to respond and reciprocate that love and to realize that hope by joining with Him, by being baptized to have your sins washed away, to walk in a new way of life. If there's any way that we can help you with that, we hope that you'll contact us. We'd like to talk to you and help you and study with you so that you may know more fully God's will on how to be made complete in Christ.